0: Of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis.
1: Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Hi, Brian. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. You and I have not seen – we had dinner with you and a friend in Indianapolis right before the pandemic, and we have not seen each other physically uh, since then, uh, and we haven't had much conversation. So I am delighted to have you here on the podcast. You've had me on – you've uh, given me the favor of having me on your podcast, and uh, so I'm delighted to now be able to return the favor. Uh, before we dive into our conversation, Brian, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself?
2: Well, hi, Jason, and I. I think you do, do me a favor because we, you know, we we get into these LinkedIn fights. You know, we we both got opinions <laughs> about donor engagement, so it's it's refreshing to be on somebody else's podcast. Well, yeah, hi everybody. I'm Brian Gower. Uh, people refer to me at RNL often as the Giving Geek. It is my actual license plate. It says Giving Geek on it. Uh yes, it does. Eight- I was a, a annual giving person and a plan giving uh, major gift person, and then I came over to r about eight years ago and became their chief fundraising researcher. I do a lot of our content, help build products, work with our great team, uh, but I continue to be the giving geek, uh, which is, I think, one of the things we're going to talk a little bit uh, about today, but that's kind of what I do. I spend all day thinking and, and learning and, and running experiments and, and just uh, f- figuring out how people respond to uh, charitable requests. It's kind of what I do.
1: So, Brian. Before we do that, uh, you and I saw each other. I think it was we had dinner, mm-hmm. and like I said a few minutes ago, in the. Was that the fall? That was a fall yeah. of yep. twenty nineteen, right? That's right.
2: Distillery, Distillery two hundred five in the fabulous Found Square of Indianapolis. <laughs> right. Yeah,
1: right. It was fantastic. I, I it was probably the highlight of my one of the highlights of my fall. I really enjoyed that. We were doing some. One of my colleagues and I were doing some other work in Indianapolis. So I delighted. I was delighted that you and your colleague uh, hosted me that evening. We had a good time, but I got to get a cat before we dive into our topic of discussion. Um, I've got to get an update on what's going on with you and your firm through the, Mm -hmm. in the midst of this pandemic, because you guys are right there in the midst of fundraising, just like the rest of us. And you've got to have, I'm very intrigued and very eager to hear sort of your read on what the last 18, 24 months has looked like since
2: you and I last talked. Well, nothing like having a couple thousand college student engagement ambassadors uh you know sitting sitting in front of phones and texting and video and all of a sudden nobody can be in the same room together so <laughs> so that's what that's what happened i mean we we continued. We continue to be one of the the biggest engagement or outreach companies in the world, uh, particularly higher education. Although there's other organizations in there as well too. And we had launched a new platform, RNL Engage, where where we, yes. we, we, you know the, the tagline that the most read email that I sent out to the com, to the to the community last year was had had the subject "We retired Phonathon," so it's my highest click rate. So we retired Phonathon. And, and what, what we mean by that is, of course, we're obviously still calling that continues to have great impact, but integrating in things like P2P texting, personalized video messaging, and then advanced analytics to drive the effort so that you're focusing on the right people, not annoying donors. I mean, we can get into that if you want, but we had launched that and then all of a sudden COVID hit right so so this this great transition we were making uh, getting rid of phonathon moving to the engagement center getting rid of the caller and moving to the student engagement ambassador right uh, change in terminology yeah. changes our thinking all that yeah. hit right at the time that that then all of a sudden we couldn't have people in the in the basement of the of the student union at a, at a major university we had to figure out a new way to do it so uh, our team very quickly pivoted and created a PCI compliant remote engagement solution that did all those does continues to do all those things that I just mentioned, and that was transformative. Uh, during that period of time, too, people used the RNL Scalefunder platform to set up student emergency funds, institutional emergency funds, uh, supporting the vaccine effort. I mean, all the stuff that universities yeah. and, and organizations are so deeply involved in. I think there was a point where we had nine million dollars come through on our platform in like ten days. So the donor response during the pandemic, you know, seeing, you know, we think about students, you know, they got, they essentially got, you know, scared. Obviously everyone was afraid, afraid they were going to get COVID. They got a pink slip because their student jobs on campus uh, ended or if they're working in a restaurant, we know how all that went. And they got an eviction notice at many institutions because they had to leave, right? The institutions couldn't house them anymore. So, so all of that, all of that change, but what was really interesting to see is immediately advancement professionals were coming to us and saying, "How do we continue engagement with donors?" How do we continue to keep these students employed because we know that our donors like to hear from them? And so it's really an incredible time. I can share with you some examples of things that people did, but it was an acceleration of transformation to our company. We say engagement first, digital first now a lot at at R&L. Yeah. but we're continuing to to seek incredible value with those engagement ambassadors and increasingly volunteer ambassadors on the crowdfunding and giving day side. so that's kind of what's going on with r n l right now a lot of integrated technology, a lot of partnerships uh, those sorts of things. It, it it occurs to me Brian that you might be one of the types one of the
1: people out there in the fundraising space that might be so one of the things i'm noticing in my client work is um as i'm interacting with people in other parts of the marketplace uh what the pandemic did in terms of their growth is it actually created a new customer have you guys at RNL identified sort of a new maybe a new donor or a new donor pattern I wonder if I, it kind of occurs to me that perhaps there was something you just said a few minutes ago that occurred to me that perhaps you guys picked up on a new donor.
2: Did, did that did that in any way happen for you guys? Yeah. So did yeah, you I pick think up on that. Yeah, I think there's going to continue to be people who buy into the branding and the mission of a quote annual fund or annual giving, right? Yeah. But there are also going to be many people who sometimes along with that, but sometimes totally separate from that, embrace the idea of giving through an institution, not just to an institution. And I'll unpack that yeah. a little bit. So when we see Dolly sure. Parton come forward with a million dollars uh, to support vaccine effort, right, she's giving through the university she gave that to to support that effort, right? We, we saw many, many campaigns, particularly in our important national discussion about diversity, inclusion, and justice, where institutions have been doing work in those areas for decades now they throw up a crowdfunding campaign and all of a sudden donors are saying yeah I want to give to that effort many of those people who are the people who were not responding to the general annual fund effort before some some can do both right but there does seem to be this this group of uh, uh, group of donors and, and I don't I, I used to say things like well this is how your millennials are going to give I don't think it's a generation anymore I think there's a cause-oriented, impact oriented, giving through as well as to, uh, oriented donor that's out there. And yeah. some of this, some of this new technology and just the fact that like COVID cost us to all just drop our attitudes and like, be real, man. It's like nothing, <laughs> like, nothing like working up, waking up every day and like wondering if you're going to survive. I mean, and, and yeah. you can, we can joke about it a little bit now because we have vaccines, but I mean, this continues yeah. to be an incredibly scary global issue, right? Definitely. Um, but, but it's interesting because higher education institutions and social service agencies were absolutely part of, of getting us to where we are now. we got work to do, but getting us to where we are now. And, and they are also the incubators of the vaccines and the technologies that made this even possible. And I think donors, donors saw that, you know, so we, we just saw incredible things. So one university, you know, it's like, oh my God, this is hitting. We can't, we can't like just go out with a solicitation tomorrow on like March 20th. You know, we can't, we can't right. do that. So then we got to get a little space, you know? Um, so, so as they're putting up emergency funds, the institution says, Hey, we got doctors who understand what coronaviruses are. Send yeah. out a text, send out a text to, to and said, you want to come to a zoom where the doctor just talks to us about what this is. Yeah. It was like thousands of people, and the institution got like 850 address and information updates as a result of that. So yeah. on face value, it's like, well, that's not a solicitation. Well, that's, that's a non-solicitation communication. Actually, you know what? That updated contact information just a few weeks later drove that institution to some incredible success on solicitations. You know, nothing like having 850,000 better, newer, you know, more accurate addresses to drive your giving day that maybe you had to delay or, or retool. Right, and so I think the industry, like our, our our advancement professional colleagues, are waking up to the idea that it's not just about asking. Man, our alumni are more than walking ATMs, and this is about yeah. a lifetime relationship. And and when when challenging times happens, you know we got to work together. You know, so it's a lot of inspiring things over the last so eighteen I, months. <clears throat> so one
1: of the things I think the pandemic, one of the things I'm consistently hearing and I'm writing about. Is um, I've read some papers about what is called perceived proximity, and this is this is Mm -hmm. research that's out that's Mm -hmm. been out there for quite some time, Mm -hmm. and this is all as it relates to platforms like the one that you and I are on Mm -hmm. now, that has have been in been in place for two decades. You know, since the dawn of the internet, a lot of this platform, a lot of these platforms have been there, Um, and that's and that only in the midst of the pandemic did we actually see the value and experience what what extraordinary efficiency can be created, but at the same time, what these what these academics are calling perceived proximity. And what they're also saying that I think sort of translates into a lot of these questions of remote workforces and do, you know, are our fundraisers working from home and et cetera, et cetera, is that if you're really good at this, you can create You can actually be better at creating what is human proximity in the sense that we can create meaningful engagement. You and I can be interacting just like we are right now without having to be in the same physical space because we as human beings are learning how to adapt to the tools that are between us. You and I right now are having a conversation that's really no different, enjoying ourselves no differently than we did at that bar that evening in Indianapolis. Well, well the, drink, the drinks were better. I got it. The know, drinks were better, but we, got could, we could buy <laughs> our own drinks. It actually would be cheaper, right? I could bring my own. <laughs> and if Perhaps. I'm embarrassed, if I, if I want to buy a cheaper bourbon, and I don't want to unimpress my friends, um, but the but the thing is, I mean, it's it's the fascinating. thing. I guess the the question I'm asking is is did the did from a you know in a positive sense, and what folks like you all are sort of advocating for is. Did the pandemic sort of prove that we can actually do high touch, very meaningful engagement with our donors and we don't have to hop on airplanes to do it and we don't necessarily have to host, you know, cheap chicken galas necessarily either. We just have to learn how to do what you and I are doing right here.
2: Yeah, well, I, you, you've heard this from me before. I'm whatever on the cheap chicken gala. I've been to been <laughs> dozens of them. I recognize that there's some value there. If you're going to do a cheap chicken gala, fine, go ahead, uh, set it up, get the food and everything, bring in your arts right. community, have your students perform, uh, have a student, compelling student speaker. You know, stop with these flat. You know, let's just glad yeah. hand the the, the twenty five year donor, Galas. Let's actually get into what's happening at the university. Have a professor get up there, get edgy with it. You've heard that yes. before, but but to answer your question, the pandemic did change things. I talked with one university. I was talking to their chief advancement officer, and I said, you know, how's this going with with your leadership and your and your gift team? And he said, you know, Brian, my president gets up now and is on Zoom with three donors before he even starts his first meeting, and I like. You know that mm-hmm. was a, that was a full day for a traveling yeah. president fundraiser before. I think yeah. the other thing too is when we talk about removing barriers, what we forget, and I think we'll get into this when we talk a little about the donation equation, is that making this easy and facilitating is a key part of what we do. So I know how major gift conversations go. Maybe I maybe I've met that individual and we know that there's interest. Maybe mm-hmm. I get with the with the partner or spouse. Ultimately, on a very big gift. The children can be involved. Other people can be involved. Certainly a financial planner could be involved. Increasingly, donor advised funds, uh, You know, other things are involved. Well, what we just described there is like eight plane trips. What if instead Mm -hmm. it's one or two plane trips, and then as we're closing, and and when I say closing, what what I mean is making everybody feel comfortable with the investment, maybe it's a group Zoom meeting where the financial advisor is on there as well, too. That is an advancement officer's dream. And what I'm hearing from people is that particularly as we get into the final stages of those conversations, so it may be an impact at the start stage. Hey, are we aligned? Is this worth us meeting in person, if we can do that safely, but even later in the conversation, when you have to bring in different parties and groups together, uh, it could be absolutely incredible. So I think it's a game changer. I do think that advancement continues to be seven to 10 years behind on technology. We've talked about this before. And, (laughs) and what the pandemic did was, you know, gift officers woke up and their world changed. And so people had to adapt um it, i know it was difficult for people particularly you know you're having a major gift conversation and and many people had to you know be educators to their kids and deal with the dog barking and the amazon package coming and all that stuff right but um we're at the end of the day we're just real people we're all experiencing the same reality of of having to do this I think, I think if people can lean into what they liked about the change and continue some of these shifts, it's good. What I'm really worried about is people reverting back to business as usual because business as usual was often a really crappy donor experience.
1: Well, I don't know if I, I don't know. I, I, yes, yes, I totally agree. But I think, I think part of what the temptation is going to be is, and you know where I'm going with this. I think part of where the temptation is going to be is to utilize the tools that we've now learned how to use yep. and try to go like hyper-efficient on it and stick with the quantitative metrics and not understand. Um, I like what Peter Thiel talks about, about how the uh, having competitive technologies versus complementary technologies. Mm-hmm. And I think like what we're doing here, complementary technologies are technologies that enhance what only humans can do. And so can we can we benefit from, or what I sometimes call back-end efficiency, rather than trying to front-load efficiency into our processes, can we recognize that, like I was talking to a gift officer here recently, not in higher education necessarily, but I was talking to her and she's like, you know, I got 500, 600 names in my portfolio. Well, at the end of the day, that's not really necessarily having these exaggerated sort of portfolios of donors isn't necessarily where the efficiency needs to come from. It needs to come from the fact that I don't have to get on those eight
2: airplanes all the time. Right. Yeah. I it's don't need, a, I don't need a stock. Yeah. I don't need a stock pond of 500 fish to go fishing. Right. Right. What right, I need is right, right, a, exactly. nice place, a nice place to sit with my friends and, and, yes. and, 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 you know, I'm going to get to know the fish, so to speak. Like it's yes. You know, what, fundraising is not about efficiency. Right. Philanthropy is not about efficiency. And our alumni, as I said, our alumni are not walking ATMs and our gift officers are not gift vending machines. Right. Right. So so I understand that that, that, I would tell that person with 500 or 600 people in their portfolio, well, let's call that a group we're looking at. Let's look into the engagement data of those individuals, what they're doing, and let's find the 50 to 75 that you should focus on right now. Uh, that's where I think that now, by the way, and people have heard me say this before, when you do that, it's a better donor experience because the, the things that you'll do in the 500 to 600 group to try to like, you know, and, you know, go after them in an, in a depersonalized way, it's probably just going to annoy them. And there's probably a charity closer to them that's doing it better. Um, yeah. I don't actually think a lot of times people choose between charitable organizations. I think people who can make these transformational gifts pro- probably could support just about any, any group they want to. But you are going to lose attention span if you're, if you're doing it in a depersonalized way. So there's, it, it, using technology to listen, I think, is a key component of this. I'm not opposed yes. to somebody having 500 to 600 people in a hunt group. But the amount of yeah. people that a gift officer can focus on is one. Now, maybe yeah. you do one three times in a day. But we can all yeah. pretty much focus on one one relationship at a time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had a guy at the Naval Academy on here.
1: I don't know, six months ago. Maybe it hadn't even, hadn't even been that long. Um, back in March or April, um, but uh, he, he was talking about how he engaged with half as many donors, raised almost as the same amount yep. of money that he would have in the previous year, mm-hmm. but. The people he talked to actually wanted to talk to him and it you was it. it was that last comment the idea that, that in the midst of the pandemic if you're talking to half as many people like the 75 people 60 75 people you just referenced think about how many, how many more development officers we could keep in there it, it becomes a solution to the turnover problem that we're constantly whining about if we can if we can put half as many donors in front of them raise the same amount of money let them sit in their in their bedrooms like I am and do their work and raise the same same amount of money, but actually let them talk to people who want to be talked to. I mean that that's the type of that's the design and sort of the the creation of these jobs that I think if we could and 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 and, and, I, and that's why I'm interested in having this conversation about about your equation, because I think the more science mm-hmm. that we can align with qualitative Mm-hmm. With qualitative understandings of human beings, you know, rather than quantitative human, <laughs> which is I, I just I just think that we're going to be all the better. Um, so, Brian, I asked you were at the giving, giving, uh, giving, tell me where you yeah, were yeah. You were yeah, at
2: the we're Giving at, Institute. Yes, yeah, so 55 50, companies. We get together kind of as a consortium, and we talk about how we can do better things for our client partners. We, we yes. talk to researchers about donor behavior. We had great people from Giving Tuesday, Do Good Institute, just an awesome Giving Institute. Shout out to my pals there. It was great. Uh, but uh, they offered us the opportunity to present a seven-minute uh, you know, lightning session. And I shared something that I had shared, uh, in previous presentations called the donation equation. Um,
1: yeah. So I decided to pick on that a little bit and uh, I'm a little skeptical of, uh, (laughs) metrics and things, things of that sort. And, uh, so, and you, you agreed to, uh, come on here and sort of unravel that thing. So, um, you Tell want us it? You about want that it? Thing. You,
2: I'll give it to you in I just do. a couple minutes. All right. So I was yeah. a, I was a gift officer. I had been in annual giving. I was a gift officer, and I'm going to go move over to this company. I said, "Okay, well, now I got to figure out. Surely someone has created the grand equation of donor response. Sure, surely there's an answer to these questions. There's been research. Uh, that, I imagine you're probably already chuckling inside because we know that there, there's not. But We'll get into that in a second. So what I did is I made a fake email address and I signed up for every company's distribution list. At the, I mean, every all the major companies that we all know. Um, at the same time, I was also enrolled in a PhD program. So I was regularly looking at academic research as well, too. I, and I just went with this fake email address after everything at the height, I got 412 emails a day. Uh, that email by the way is gone. Um, uh, but what I did is I started to take all this research, the product pitches, the, the products themselves, stats that were quoted to me and say, can I create buckets for these? Because it's impossible yeah. for any advancement professional to try to figure out behavioral psychology, behavioral economics, uh, sociology, you know, marketing research, all that stuff. It's impossible to keep track of all that, but could I create some buckets? And the buckets started to build. And I said, well, I'm going to go to a conference and I'm going to start presenting on this stuff. And the buckets changed. But it ended up being six things that seem to uh, be validated by research experience. Uh, Obviously, I'm doing my podcast at the same time and and talking to experts about this stuff. Um, Six things. And I give them to you. So the first two are baseline. Uh, Number one is philanthropy. So just the basic uh, ability. Uh, history, education about giving. We know that philanthropy is a learned behavior. So what are people's previous experience with giving, right? Is is that even, is is that even part, part of their uh, psychology? So that's the give. Then there's the get component, which I called uh, gratitude. I originally called it stewardship and a great uh, case member, corrected me and said, stewardship. what we do gratitude is what donors feel. So this is the, this is the get component. So philanthropy plus gratitude, what do you get? Tax benefits, uh, tchotchkes, uh, a warm glow feeling, uh, invoking Andreoni, yeah. right? So, so what is the sure. give and the get? So that's the first two. Those are the baselines, and then that those are amplified by three accelerants: connection, story, and urgency. Connection is mm-hmm. your connection to the cause connection to the asker, connection to peers who may be soliciting you or or maybe present in the materials or volunteers. Story is, what is your personal narrative of giving? What is the story of impact that the organization has? So we hear about storytelling. So story is a component. And then urgency, which is the answer to the question, why give now? Uh, That's answered in higher education often by giving days, crowdfunding campaigns, lots of ways that we manufacture urgency or amplify urgency, gift matches, gift matching campaigns that have a deadline are a classic example of urgency. So philanthropy plus gratitude times connection, story, and urgency, some combination of those three, all Mm -hmm. of it divided by the final variable, which is barriers or friction. So how we make it harder to give. Uh, crappy giving pages are an example of making it harder to give, um, not having clear instructions about security transfers on, on your website to make it easy for people to give. Uh, that's an example, uh, maybe requiring donors to meet with you in person rather than getting on zoom. Right. That's uh, right. thinking, yeah. you know, rather than asking, what would you like to do? Right. So that's an example of friction. So philanthropy plus gratitude, the baseline amplified by connection, story, and urgency. All of it divided by barriers. And um, there's a lot in there, but what it's worked well when I've talked with people and, and used it in my consulting work and at conferences to say, you can pick one. So I'll give you an example, classic pick one connection. Anytime we change the person who signs the letter, we see a different and often larger group of people respond. So if your letter, your fundraising letters are always coming from the VP for advancement, um, sorry to break it to you. Not everyone cares about the title VP for advancement. When you switch, <laughs> when you switch the signer of that letter, to a student or a faculty member or a fellow donor, even if you change almost nothing in the content, just the stuff that's necessary to make the voice work correctly, you will often see a very different group of people respond. I remember when I was uh, on my first volunteer board at the American Red Cross in, in Knox County, Illinois, um, former, former state senator took over as the executive director. He took the letters home. And we printed them in black and he signed them in blue. We had like four times the response rate on that director yeah. piece. It was like, yeah. you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, so Carl, uh, shout out to Carl on that. So, so that's an example of a thing that you can pick and change up. Um, what I've mentioned a lot of times in the presentation is if you just have to pick one thing, work on that barriers component because okay. yeah.
1: sit, sit with me, for, sit with me, t- go high level with me for a minute yeah. before we, cause I want to let you unravel this some more, but I'd, So one of the things that I'm consistently doing here on the podcast, I'm sort of picking on the sort of what I consider to sort of be the 20th century definition of a fundraising expert versus the 21st century definition of an expert. And I think it's going to be an evolution, Brian, of moving from best practices that are, are sort of assumed to be sort of. Uh, universally accepted to more of a more appreciation of sort of a localized and sort of contextual appreciation. And I think what it's going to do is it's going to put a pressure on this is this is sort of what I'm because because what I just heard you describe that I didn't sort of see when you were discussing this on social media Um is I'm seeing the experts, the people who are sort of privileged to stand in front of audiences like you and I and to get on here and have these conversations and stuff, who perhaps are quote-unquote experts by some definition, we're going to be the creators of tools rather than best practices. Does that make sense? So yeah. tools, being, tools being things like what you just described, which I'm far more accepting now that I've actually had a conversation with you about it and we put it in the hands of the local user which is yes. the development officer the advancement director the person creating the web page whatever da 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 dah. And then the expertise actually emerges from the use of the tool that we created, handed it to them. It's used in their local context and the, and it becomes an emergent sort of form of expertise that actually is really almost better articulated sort of later down the road. Like it may not be necessarily you and I that get to stand in front of the room so long, so much forever, uh because it's actually got to be you know Sally or John who used your tool and actually can actually articulate what what sort
2: of expertise emerged from it does that make sense absolutely we did a, we did a student philanthropy conference uh before the pandemic and what I did is that we actually went through the equation and then we had a worksheet and everybody went down in their program and they picked a couple things and just yeah. to see what people did at when they had a framework so the framework is just—I could come up with twenty-five different variables. right? Yes. it's just a yes. way for us to pick specific areas that we can focus on. Um, and it's—and and part of it is—you got to be really careful. Uh, I'll give you one story. We're at a major research university, and I'm sitting in front of them presenting to the entire advancement division, and we do the Q and A afterwards. And they said, "Well, uh, we're having some trouble with acquisition." And I said, well, describe to me your donor acquisition kind of package. And one of the things that was in there was a five page letter from the president of the university. And as you know, I'm i wanted, I just immediately said, Well, you're nuts. Mm-hmm. Like there's no way for a brand new donor that a five page letter, like all the classic fundraising wisdom would be you would you would you gotta get it to one page. You know, like maybe you would do more for, for, for the consistent, loyal, recurring, whatever donors, but 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 a five page letter to to a brand new donor. I don't know, but then they stopped me for a second, and what we all realized was the president of that university is the former governor of that state, who was elected three times—I think two, two, two times—I think, because of term limits—by extraordinary margins, very well known, right? So, so in fact, in that instance, yes, it fund, cr- correct fundraising, in, you know, instinct is you want to do a shorter letter for brand new donors and capture their attention, but yeah. in this case, there is a much greater willingness. For, for the population to, to view to view that and accept that because they know, they know this guy, so to speak. Yeah. So what I said to them is the, the key shift that you got to make is you probably need a slightly shorter version or somewhat shorter version for the new donors and then get those new donors the opportunity to go then maybe watch a video from the president. Because what we want to do is we want to see them take their first action. Okay. Because that yes. is getting to the story version. All behavioral change, all learning is incremental we assume as fundraisers that we will create the coolest appeal and everybody will just respond. Every adoption of a cause, every investment, every philanthropic act is actually incremental, including when I give at a checkout. Right. And it's incremental Mm -hmm. because this is how my mother taught me to act. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so there's a long incremental thing there, but I pretty much always give, you know, with the tack on gifts at a checkout. Right. Um, But but all that is incremental. And so you have to provide people an incremental path. What we do too often is just give them the big thing we want them to do and see what percentage of them do that. We're leaving out Mm -hmm. a tremendous opportunity for engagement, for people to create their own personal story. Right. And this holds mm-hmm. up in research. When we look at what Russell James has done connecting, mm-hmm. uh, plan giving donors to, to uh, fMRI and, and actually finding that the areas of the brain that activate when people contemplate these types of philanthropic investments are actually the same areas that activate when they contemplate their own mortality. So not just right. at the, Hey, leave a legacy <laughs> level, the, the language we always use in fundraising, but biologically, the same parts of the brains that he called uh, symbolic immortality, uh, Interact so so it's it becomes very much a first person transition. I don't know. I'm just I'm just nerding out here trying to give you some idea of of what it is. But I think you're absolutely right. There is no fundraising expert that has quote the answer. There there are people that I'd go to. I go to Erica Wazdorf on recurring giving. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Okay. You know, so, I, 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 I got Dan Allenby. I go to him all the time on annual giving stuff. Right. I mean, there's people like that, but, but I think also there has to be a willingness to say, well, how's it specific to our program? What else can I bring in here? Most importantly, what are we hearing from donors? Are we serving our donors? But back and to, I,
1: I, I want to give you, I want to give you credit where credit is due. I think you've created a tool that when you like, like the story you just told, I think you've created a tool that when we put it in the ha- – so, so who – if it was a tool and it's the right tool for the right development officer who's using it in the right place who is that person tell me who that person is because what i started it what i initially heard you describe and what i think you almost what i think you're we're talking about in some ways the online giving sort of transaction the page but what i also heard in between the lines of i think what you described is not a whole lot different than a tool that could be used by a major gifts officer as he or she is planning out a Essentially, a relationship-building process and a solicitation
2: process. Am I right? Yeah. So we could break it down for a major gift officer. The philanthropy component, you're probably going to yeah. focus on people that you know have some wealth or have a history of giving. Yes. Right? There, yes. there could be exceptions to that, right? On the yeah. gratitude component, of course, if that person has given annually or been part of your organization, you hope your stewardship team has thanked them. Um yeah. On the gratitude side, we all can make be advocates for, for philanthropic inclusion and political policy as well, too. Right. So those are going to be there um, yeah. on connection, story and urgency. There's some interesting ways you can mix it up. A major gift officer. I had so much success getting and, and I I was a fundraiser in Hollywood and, and um, New York City, mainly Broadway. Uh, these people are very busy. They got a lot of people looking for their time and attention. They got a lot of people looking to to take advantage of their of their fame and, and fortune, so to speak. On the connection side. I had 100% yes, I'll take a meeting rate when I brought their directing or acting professor with me to Hollywood or New York. And I, I yes. sat with – I, I, you know, I, mean, I, I we won't get into names, but I sat with people who I regularly see on television right now and had incredible experiences with them talking about how their lives were changed at 19, 20 years old by this directing, acting professor. And, of course, the gifts flowed from there right? One of the biggest gifts that, that I received was, was a, uh, an actor who just loved piano. So it's actually yeah. not the theater professor. He wanted his piano professor, right? And it was absolutely incredible. So, so we play with that connection side. On the urgency side, what we're starting to hear is that in some cases where a major gift isn't right for right now, or there's some stall in the process, asking that major donor to be a matching gift donor on the giving day Say it's a five thousand dollars, a ten thousand dollars, you may be you may be working with that person on a million dollar commitment. But in the interim, asking them to be one of the ambassadors that stands up a match for an hour's worth of giving on your giving day, those conversations are going super well because because the major gift owners are like, Oh, that's that's an opportunity for me to help, right? And they get into mm-hmm. it more and now all of a sudden what we find is that bigger gift conversation is accelerated because they're more comfortable. Right. And so we can play with any one of these variables or whatever. variables. Yeah. We don't have to use my equation. You can use you want. But I think always be thinking um, and, you, and people have heard me right before. Uh, I believe that moves management is a mirage. I'm not saying that you shouldn't use the system, but it is a fundraising yeah. face, fa- fundraiser facing system. We should be focused yeah. much more on the donor experience and some of these key things like what's the narrative here for the donor what is the connection yeah. to who we're bringing to the table? Why give now? Like w- w- why give now? Like y- you could do it anytime. You could, you could do it. Y- why are we seeing people signing signing the giving pledge and giving during their lifetimes? Right? Yeah. And the answer to that's cuz they want to be involved, right? So those are some of the things uh on the okay. on the other, so, Yeah. So so that's a gift officer something. side of it. That's a gift officer side. You would do it differently for a campaign, you would do it differently for annual giving appeal. You can apply it on a micro or macro level. Yes, right. I, I totally see that. But I, I want you
1: to stay with the. Um, okay. I, somebody asked me, somebody asked me, I don't know, six months ago, nine months ago, in some sort of a, I think we were in a Zoom workshop or something. And they asked me what I thought. The skills that were going to be necessary for 21st century fundraising were going to be given some of the evolution of what was happening at the time. And I said two things, and I sort of surprised myself. Somebody, you know, you sort of shoot from the hip with some of these questions sometimes. I said discernment and audacity. And I wonder if the discernment that I was basically referring to is um, I've also been studying up on this notion of what are simple rules or heuristics, these things that basically you structure simple rules or basically equations that if I can sort of ch- and we do this in my in my seminars too we basically have these simple rules these structures mm-hmm. that if you can sort of discern these various different sort of qualitative and sometimes quantitative indicators you can sort of predict where these relationships are going to go and that's what I sort of hear in what you're basically have created in this particular tool, does that make sense? you yeah, perhaps so it, could be on to something about creating that more discerning donor so that rather than maybe relying on a bunch of predict i'm I'm very opposed to some of this predictive stuff and so rather than being predictive, can some of the prediction happen by combining a tool like yours and a fundraiser who has more discernment in their head? and and they've sort of been engaged with this donor and they can use that data that information that level of engagement that they've formed to then be able to predict it at a at a more
2: human level rather than a machine level, does that make sense? Well, yes. And, and what I always say about predictive analytics is that they're going to get you to the right forest, but they may not even help you get the right trees. And so predictive yeah, analytics, right? Will, exactly. I'm, yeah. I'm I'm seeing your tool. Yeah. I'm seeing your
1: tool as we're stuck in a really big damn forest, and I don't know. Who the hell to talk to? But if I've got this tool in my hand and I'm engaging with is, if I'm sufficiently engaging with a large number of these trees and then I use a tool like, like what Brian's given me, I can better discern who to talk to and invest more time in.
2: Yeah, I think there's probably three levels. One is is to say segmentation. So we, we just know, for example, that people who have given before are more likely to make a major gift. That, that doesn't mean you won't yeah. I- ignore the, the people who just give for the first time. And, and that, that does happen. But yeah. th- that's segmentation. Then predictive analytics to say, who is showing the highest level of engagement right now? So that gets yeah. you to a tighter group. But that's, yeah. again, only going to get you to the trees. You're not going to be able to prune a bonsai tree with predictive analytics. That's when your fundraiser skills that's when you're listening skills. That's when I think uh, donor surveys, we've had incredible success with those. Um, yeah. Seeing institutions double their young alumni giving through, through targeted outreach and, and uh, market, like literally serving the donors about what they thought. And some of the surveys for these institutions were hard to read. There was feedback given there. There were some tense moments as people started to read that feedback. But the institutions then were able to adapt, change that, and, and, and saw huge increases I think finally, fundraisers don't work alone. Volunteer ambassadors, yeah. what we call mm-hmm. natural partners, who work with us within our organizations, other other donors are absolutely key. I can't imagine going in for a million dollar ask without some natural partners or volunteers helping me out. I, I can't imagine doing it. I don't right, presume right. to think that I am charismatic enough <laughs> to make that happen. Yeah. Right. So so why not work w- with with our friends. And we saw this, for example, in giving days. It was initially with fundraisers like, oh, my God, here's another thing that, you know, the professor's like, oh, another thing you want us to do. We got we got classes to teach. Will you leave us alone? And the deans were like, OK, whatever. This is the next gimmick. A couple of years into it. Now they're they're like, oh, my God, the, the dean in the other college is, is you know, raising all this money. I want to get into this. Right. Yeah. And so what we find is when we engage natural partners in fundraising and philanthropy, it becomes addictive and they get into it more. Yeah. So. Yeah.
1: Is the tool, is enough of your um, inputs focused on the subsequent behavior after the initial gift to sort of, if if you recall in my first book, I I made this distinction between the initial and the subsequent gifts. And I basically made the argument that far too much of our industry is focused on initial gifts, generating all these uh, sort of what I call trivial gifts that are relatively shallow relationships and aren't necessarily going anywhere. Is enough of your equation Oriented towards, or is it completely oriented towards the subsequent gift sort of behavior? So, I, th- as I think to- you could
2: apply it across the board. One of the things that people have okay. heard from me before is I talk about four types of donor uh, behavior. So, the first yeah. is trans-transactional, which you, you just talked about, and what people yeah. you and I have talked about this before. Yeah. What, what people forget is, is that when people make that first gift, they may not even know what they're giving for. Yeah, they did it. They did it because somebody did, you know, right. And so and so then then we have to really get into uh, relationship based giving. And that's when I think you subsequently help people understand what they gave to educate them about the organization, really focus on mission. The third level is what we call lifestyle giving. And this is those of us who have donors who like call at the end of the year, like, oh, did I get my gift in? I didn't forget. Like, they're so worried that they would miss when you start to see that behavior. When the, you know, I will always be one of your donors and I hope I never miss. And now I'm at events and now I'm inviting other people. That's lifestyle giving. Most often you see those three types of giving before you see the final giving, which is uh, transformational giving.
1: Yeah. Again,
2: there can be, there can be people who do that transformational gift right off. But even when we look at some of the mega philanthropy, great, great people like Mackenzie Scott, who made these gifts, there's actually a process to that. Uh, and you talk to the institutions that receive those gifts, there was a process um, that that went through. And and usually, and so a lot of that comes out of behavioral economics. When we see that people Mm -hmm. really kind of habituate and adopt a cause, uh, recommend the Y-axis, John List and Uri Neasy, W-H-Y-axis, Derek Feldman's great work on cause adoption. You know, we really start to see people go through – a, a psychological, to some degree, I mean, not in the religion sense, but spiritual transformation. Yes, right? yes, very much so. Mm-hmm. By the time they go from transaction to relationship to lifestyle to transformation, there really is a—it's an aha! It's a spiritual transformation in many ways. So that's a key thing. The, what the donation equation does is says, "What are going to? What are the things that you can change? That you can shift? What variables can you use?" Class, classic example: send out the letter. Maybe from the institution, but then mm-hmm. follow up with three emails with videos from a student, a faculty member, and a fellow donor. Because we know on a connection level that there are going to be people who are more moved by a different voice. I'm always amazed that institutions will set out like a direct mail piece and go, well, this is our response rate. Well, like, what was the campaign that surrounded that and created a, a narrative and a story and allowed people opportunities to connect? We think that we know that we can make the pitch on how people connect it. Donors decide where they're going to connect. So provide a menu, a robust menu of opportunities to connect for them. Don't just hang in on one appeal. You do that. You're going to lose a lot of money. You're going to waste your resources and you're going to annoy donors. Okay. So you
1: mentioned McKenzie Scott and you think about, so let's relate. Let's relate for a minute. Let's spend the last 10, 15 minutes relating Mm -hmm. your giving equation to the, what we might call sort of marginalized or overlooked higher ed, higher education institutions that she's giving to, for example, yes. who perhaps have not had the infrastructure, <clears throat> the infrastructure or expertise historically to raise gifts from, say, that upper echelon of society that she's now giving to. For example, we're talking about like in many cases, a lot of HBCUs are getting a lot of gifts from her, for example, if they can actually take a tool like yours and begin to develop sort of some of this discernment that I'm referring to that a lot of fundraisers need to have, are we in some ways when we, I I think in a lot of ways for for years we've been talking since, certainly since the, a lot of people have been talking about the democratization of fundraising and of philanthropy Mm -hmm. and so, so forth. But I think in a lot of ways it comes from some of this discernment that the fundraiser has to be able to have And a lot of that has been in the exclusively in the hands of these institutions that can pay for you know, super talented, super experienced sort of individuals. But now you might be the local HBCU, for example. It's got a two-year major gifts officer, relatively inexperienced, an annual fund director, maybe a, an advancement shop that has no more than four or five people in it. And I've been on some of these college campuses like this. But if they can actually start to understand fundraising like you're describing, they can perform better than, in some cases, the inst- the big, huge, mega institution down the street. Do you follow my thinking there?
2: Yeah, I mean, what I, what I would
1: actually it would, enables the tool actually begins to train them up to behave at the level of performance that the shop down the street has sort of been enlightened with for, for perhaps decades, if not yeah, I mean, centuries.
2: What, what I would say is there's plenty of fundraisers at HBCUs that know a lot more about fundraising than I do. They HBCUs okay. accomplish incredible things with very limited resources. Sure. In my opinion, yeah. their lack of resources is criminal. I will literally use the word criminal. Uh, we, yeah, sure. HBCUs produce for their students and their communities success, academic success, degree attainment at essentially double the rate that we would predict those same students to get uh, in another environment. HBCUs are an absolute treasure in, in, of the American public, and they do so much with limited resources because, because, honestly, because of structural issues that we've been talking about in uh, yeah. an intense right. national discussion. It's 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 a real thing. Um, what I love about what Mackenzie Scott did, and she outlined this in, in in the post that she wrote, seeding to seed. So seeding, C-D-I-N-G to seed. So she actually gave he's giving the money with no restrictions. And so is a type of philanthropist that says, this is the change I want to make in the world. We have looked at what these organizations are doing and, and we trust you. We see what you're doing is great. And so we're going to really, make the contribution and let you go for it. That is, I think, a new form of giving. Even just a few years ago, I remember, oh, we got to make sure our gift agreements have four pages because, you know, the legal side and then down the road, 15 years and then the kids, and then we might lose the gift and, you know, all, all these things. It's like, there are a lot of philanthropists that are just very comfortable with your organization. And when you ask them, what do you, where do you want to make a difference? even a very broad category are going to be very comfortable doing that. I think this is a new wave of philanthropy. I think what what Mackenzie Scott and her team has done is incredible. I've talked with people who are recipients of the gift and the process that, that they went through it, very, very quick, very speedy um, and confidentiality and things like that. But the way they did it is just absolutely
1: incredible. Um, okay. But but do you, in between the lines of what you're saying is, and what I'm trying, again, I'm trying to sort of get, lend credit to your tool here. If the HBCU is not inclined is is inclined to think on the receiving end of the way that McKinsey's giving, mm-hmm. and they use a tool that embeds sort of simple rules into their thinking rather than gift like for for example gift agreements, which these large institutions like writing up yeah. ridiculous contracts with their donors as if they're right. you know yeah it, it's 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 obnoxious in my opinion. And that could be a competitive advantage that you give to a lot of these institutions yep. that haven't historically looked at fundraising. What I'm getting at is, is they've been looking at fundraising through the wrong lens because the only fundraising they see is fundraising from that big institution down the street.
2: You're right. And I think part of it is to really get to what are you giving your gift officers <laughs> in, tool, in terms of tools and support? So the average organization that, say, has five gift officers could probably, the next time one of the positions becomes open, and and from the data, what we see is you're probably, if you have five people, you're going to have a position open every six months, forever. Yes, right? right. That's just the way it's going to be. So the next time you yeah. have an open position, use the money that you would have used for that interim period. It's probably going to take you a while to hire somebody and put tools in place to support your other gift officers. Where we've seen people do that, they've had extraordinary success. We assume that we just take charismatic people, give them big old lists of hundreds of people and send them at them and, and to go get the money. And right. like that's like it that's like insanity. Like no sales yes. organization would even consider doing that. They have multiple levels of sales support, they have technology and Place and so the issue with the structural issues in the haves and the have-nots in higher education, which unfortunately yeah. have often fallen on race lines, they certainly fall on class lines, they certainly yes. fall on location, rural, urban lines, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, It's 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 created a situation where people really can't <laughs> can't move forward. So uh, I think it, last case report, the top twelve institutions raised twenty one percent of the funds. So, like less than one percent <laughs> raised a fifth of the funds. It's that's yes. you know, and so I, I think donors are looking at that and saying, "Well, if you already have this massive endowment war chest," there's a classic article called "The Dark Side of Endowment Accumulation." You can mm-hmm, read about mm-hmm. that. You know, um, we got to go in some different directions here. Number one, tools. I think number two is saying that giving through as well as giving to, right, because where can you have an impact? Maybe the answer, if you have a $3 billion endowment to the giving side is, can you help us with this new initiative? Can you help us with this associated organization, right? Can we take our mission to the K-12 schools and provide support in that area? And and, and there's been some great gifts that that have helped that as well, too.
1: So would you concur, would you concur on the, uh, and I have not said this on the podcast and I will give you all the credit in the world for sort of having putting this idea in my head. There are far more McKinsey Scots in our current databases than we give ourselves credit for sort of having. I think there's a lot of people out there who want to give. They They don't have anywhere near the capability that McKinsey has, but they want to give in what is a much more... Less strings attached sort of way. And we just have to know getting back to the notion of engage, getting back to a lot of the places where we started this conversation, get on, get on a platform like this, have meaningful conversations, kind of like what we talk about in gift economies rather than commodity sort of economies. I think people just want to engage with their recipients in meaningful ways where the relationship is at the center of these things. And if our, or, and if our, and if our expert, if our experts were sort of pushing tools out there, that in, enabled fundraisers to sort of discern that way, they'd find a hell of a lot more mckinsey Scots in their existing database.
2: Am I right? Yeah, I think giving is always a leap of faith, right? So so you're not getting... Which is, no. which is, which, exactly. It's
1: a leap of, <laughs> gee whiz, you got me riled up. It's a leap of faith is just another word for risk. And risk is an inherent part of what a gift economy is. And I just don't
2: think that we know how to operate in that paradigm. No. And what we've been doing, and again, I'm like the least religious person in the world, but I'll use a religious metaphor, <laughs> is what we've been doing for decades is writing sermons. So we think that we can stand in front of a room of people or in front of a person and make a pitch. And what you yeah. find is when you look particularly at religious giving, that that's not how it happens. It's also no, it's, an, it's also attending the church dinner. it's the it's the, the connections you have with with peers. it's the his, history with your family right And so for us to, as fundraisers to think that we can make a pitch and get somebody to give that's that's going to work for a very limited set of donors. What we yes. should be doing instead is number one, finding the right people based on engagement data. I'm still going to make a pitch for that and number yeah. two, doing a lot more listening. The, the organizations, and I'm an advancement resources grad, uh, the, the, the training, the training that, that teaches you how to listen better uh, yeah. is, is, is just way better. Now, uh, just want to keep in mind that when we say listening, some of that can be digital. I continue to be amazed why people don't survey their donors, do quick forms. Uh, I just did a conference recently, Donor Engagement Forum, where we just asked everybody, what do you want to most hear about it, at the forum? And we tailored the content based on the hundreds of responses that we got. And it was way better event and it cost us nothing to just add that field. 70% of the people filled it out. They wrote cool stuff. Right. Um, So we got to do a better job with that listening. Um,
1: I I think I'm going to start picking on, I haven't started this, but I think I'm going to start picking on gift agreements, going back to your pitch, going back to your pitch uh, analogy. I really appreciate that because I think you're exactly, I think you're exactly right. I totally concur with that. Are all these highly sophisticated sort of contracts that we do a
2: result of that pitch approach well they were, they're results of they're results of litigation, fear of internal conflict, the nuts shallow relationships. Of- well, no. no, I mean, I th- actually, I, th- I think that there are issues. I mean, I think that we have, endowment, yeah. we have endowments that exist at universities for things that, are, that no longer can be supported. They don't even exist as majors anymore, down to, right. down, down to, down to some of uh, endowments, agreements. We're finding that probably should have never have been created in terms of, of yes. our feelings about justice, inclusion, and diversity. So we're working we're yes. through those things. So I think there is an interest in making sure that we get the documentation right. But what I'm worried about is documentation-first fundraising. It needs to be engagement first fundraising. There will be a point where you work with people, maybe even a financial advisor or a lawyer connected to that family, where you're going to do a formal agreement, and it very well maybe be four to four to eight to eighty pages, right? But to present a donor early in the process with a proposal that's larger than one page, I wouldn't do it. So, right, uh, I think right. if you can't if you can't depict it in one page because they're going to share it with their kids, they're going to share it with their financial advisor, which is an individual that has limited time. It has to be. Yeah. For a donor advice fund, if they're going to direct a gift from a donor advice fund, it needs to be like one freaking sentence, man. If, for those of us who have yeah. gotten these calls from donor advice funds where they ask you the questions, you've got to answer those questions. Exa- they only have time for like one question. And the question yeah. was always, yeah. uh, can, can I ask you, is, is Mr. Lewis involved in the selection of the, of the, of the person who receives the scholarship? And I'd say, "No. Thank you. The funds will be on the way. Click." You know, and it was in his early career, yeah. you know, professional that's making that this call to make sure that it's legal and stuff like You got to be able to have those quick answers right away. There will be a time where your endowment, you know, and, and maybe even say to a donor, Hey, we're gonna do this brief agreement now. We'll handle the legal components of it of it later, but are we all on the same yeah. page? Again, yeah, incremental. Stop jumping to the to the big aha. Uh-huh. All behavioral change, all cause adoption, all giving decisions are incremental. Stick with that. Yeah. You're going to have a lot more success. Yeah, yeah. and
1: and and, a, and a, a kudos to you for creating a tool that perhaps I'm a little more convinced of. Because if you <laughs> if you if you can utilize tools, if we create better tools for people to use in that incremental process, mm-hmm. they won't be so inclined to jump to these overly complex things that oftentimes interfere and make the relationship a whole lot harder for both sides of the charitable exchange. I I, I think that's part of what is sort of emerging from a lot of this tension is that in in the fundraising space is that we have not designed fundraising to create meaningful experiences for those on both sides of the charitable gift. And so when you put these when you, put, when you put the right tools in the right incremental sort of place in the process, it makes for a much more meaningful work and a much more meaningful experience for the donor. We, Brian,
2: we've created a lot have, of uh, on um, fundraising tools to sell CRMs and to make fundraisers feel better. It's time to create yeah. tools th- that allow us to connect better with donors, listen, listen better and create a relationship that, again, is is about incremental a- a- adoption. And I think that's the direction we're seeing the industry go right now. And the, the companies, the fundraisers that are leaning into that are doing a lot better. Brian.
1: You do call yourself a fundraising geek, and I like to pick on geeks because uh, you. And, and so I'm the guy who picks on you, and you're the guy who proudly says I'm a fundraising geek. I love it. Um, <laughs> I, every time we get together uh, in person and on the podcast or your podcast, I enjoy the conversation. Um, you're obviously well read, and I respect that a great deal. Um, I think you're onto something. If people uh, are interested in learning about the uh, the donation equation, they
2: want to reach out to you. How would you suggest that they do that? Then you just head over to ruffleonl.com. You can find me there on the website. You can also read our blog uh, and check out Fundraising Voices. That's where we talk about this stuff. Um, This this has been an experiment over the last few years. I'm happy to come to your organization and present the equation and ask you questions about how you think you could use some of these things. It's about creativity. It's about um, challenging the norm in the way that we, we do donor engagement. And so that's why I created it. So happy to do that for anybody who reaches out to me.
1: And is there something I can put in the show notes, something that people can very quickly um download or a link or something? Can we do that as well?
2: Uh yeah. Well, actually just go with my email and I'll send them the worksheets and okay. all the stuff like that. So uh Brian.gower okay. at ruffalonl.com and we'll get you all the materials. Okay, so yeah, everybody
1: look in the show notes. There is an email to Brian. You can reach out to him. And uh Brian, it has certainly been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. Okay, I'll pick a fight with you on LinkedIn next, and then we'll record another
2: episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs>